When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. And Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps is absent again this week, but we hear he's found a lucrative new career in France after a long cruise, and we wish him all the best. In our last episode, we discussed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, James Whale's iconic Universal monster movies, starring Boris Karloff as the monster routinely known as Frankenstein, and Colin Clive as the aristocratic mad scientist who brings dead flesh to life, then finds out that's a bad idea. This week, we're back with Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things, a modern, whimsical retelling starring Emma Stone as the creature equivalent. Bella, and Willem Dafoe as Dr. Godwin Baxter, the disintegrating mad scientist who builds her in a lab and tries to keep her under his thumb and close to his heart, which also does not work out well. There's a distinctly feminist bent to poor things as Bella fights for her freedom, particularly her sexual freedom. She considers Godwin more of a father figure than a possible lover, but it's no coincidence that he's taught her to call him God. When she starts to resist his control, he tries to marry her off to his assistant but she escapes with a rakish cad named Duncan, played by Mark Ruffalo, and heads out on an adventure where she keeps meeting men and chafing under their ideas of reality or morality, and meeting women who she learns from and becomes close to. Like so many of Lanthimos' films, it's funny in a very skewed sort of way, but it's also a lot less dark than most of his movies, both in the sunny, vividly colorful world Bella escapes into, and in the fluffiness and satirical quality of a lot of the themes on display here. We'll get into it after this break. This is Bella. Bye, bye. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. No! She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she is progressing at an accelerated pace. Tell me, where did she come from? I shall. For it is a happy tale. I am Bella Baxter, and there is a world to enjoy, circumnavigate. It is the goal of all to progress, grow. A woman plotting her course to freedom. How delightful. All right, y'all. What the hell is uh, Yorgos Lanthimos on? Like, what What do you think he's doing with this movie? I don't know, movie? but I want some. I, I want whatever it is. <laughs> I only got to watch Poor Things once last night, and I am dying to watch it again. I just like want to kind of be in it for even longer, but also like I need several more viewings to figure out what the hell is in here that actually means something that, you know, that has thematic resonance versus just like 
it looks cool and weird and, you know, makes you go, what the hell? Because that's also appealing in its own right. Well, it's a hoot. I mean, like it is, it yeah, is a, yeah. it is a very fun film. I mean, like that mm-hmm. is one of the things that's is so interesting about the way this film plays is that it is a film of extremes in so many mm-hmm. different ways, extremes of behavior, certainly full of images and behavior and you know nudity and what, what are, like a lot, a lot of things that we don't really encounter. You know, different. You know, the fisheye lens. Everything is so audacious and wild and yet it feels like the most kind of accessible thing he's done like he pulled off that same kind of trick with the favorite as well he just mm-hmm. has a he has a way of making the outrageous palatable and, and, and poor things is just a film that i had a first and foremost kind of a really great time with yeah, which is not something I necessarily associate with Lanthimos's movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, I tend to really respect what he does and find myself very much, you know, drawn deep into it and and feeling the emotions and wanting to like parse out his his meanings and his symbolism. He's one of a, a fairly small handful of directors who like reading interviews with him makes me want to like go back and rewatch the movie and then go back and reread the interview, rinse, repeat, because he is kind of expressing very specific things that he's willing to talk about, but in very symbolic and complicated ways. And this movie just doesn't feel that complicated to me. It it feels like the the themes are on the sleeve and sometimes in the mouths of the characters, but not at all in a like a bad or limiting or, or small or an insulting way. This is, this is a very big film. But I agree that it's definitely one of his most accessible, maybe even more accessible than The Favorite, and also probably more fun than The Favorite in the end. Yeah, as much as there is going on in this movie, it feels like it's mostly happening on a tonal and visual level more than a thematic or narrative one. Like it is a pretty, it's a neat movie. Like it wraps up neatly. I really like the ending of this movie. It's not like anywhere near as sort of thought provoking as the ending of even of the favorite, you know, which was like you say, kind of more accessible. And this one wraps up in an even like, like I said, like a tidier package. But it's also very satisfying for that reason, you know, like it feels like I just had an incredible meal watching this movie and I'm very satisfied coming out of it. And that's not necessarily the same as being like intellectually stimulated, although it did have that, but it's not like what I would necessarily say is like the main draw of this movie is like it's it's not like a head scratcher <laughs> necessarily, you know, it's, it's it's entertaining and it has ideas and it expresses those ideas in a very unexpected and unusual way. And I think like seeing that expression, the expressionism of this movie is sort of where the appeal and the excitement lies more than what is being expressed. It's also just a very cheery movie. You know, there are sad and uh, tragic elements at various points in the movie, but this is kind of a feel-good movie with a happy ending. And if you asked me to come up with a list of 20 words or concepts that I associate with Lanthimos' films, feel-good movie or feel-good comedy would not be anywhere on that list. But uh, this kind of is. Yeah, even if you were describing this movie, like it wouldn't necessarily, I think, be what comes. I mean, this is a movie that opens with a suicide, and the setup, I guess, of of what's happening to Bella is really like gruesome, but also just like kind of twisted. You know, like she is her own child. That's really weird. (laughs) You know, but it's also like one of the. But it's also one of those things that, like, once it's there, like once it's been expressed, you're like, 
oh, okay, yeah, I see that. And I see how this entire movie follows that setup. And it does so in a very fun way. One thing, though, that's consistent is that Lanthimos has always had a very strong sense of humor. I mean, his movies are all funny. Maybe there's a level of darkness in his black comedy that might vary a bit. But, you know, I'm thinking of maybe his darkest film, The, the, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. I mean, that's a film that, that, to me, one of the funniest parts of the movie is when, when you know, when, when this surgeon played by Colin Farrell has to choose, you know, he's being forced to choose to kill one of his family members. He does everything possible yep, to avoid. Yep, laugh a minute comedy. And his ulti- <laughs> but his ultimate, his ultimate solution is to blindfold himself and all of them and just, and just you know... <laughs> run around in circles with a rifle and sh- shooting until it, until he hits one of them you know it's just the ultimate you know example of this man who cannot possibly take responsibility for any of his actions which i think is conceptually funny but i think in poor things you get stuff that is just funny funny which is a different kind of a, a feeling you know the, the movie this reminded me of most of the poor things is dog tooth of his because he likes this idea of children who understand the world from an extremely narrow and sort of demented point of view, who learn everything. You know, in Dogtooth, you have these adult children who have never left their parents' influence and, in fact, have a different sense of language than mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Different, different words have different meanings to them. And so they're shaped wholly in, you know, in their parents' image. But then, of course, their hormones or their curiosity push against that. And that's essentially what happens in poor things. It's just kind of a different type of influence that Bella's getting from God, where she knows the word colloquially, but she doesn't know what a banana is or her <laughs> mannerisms, the things she that interest her, uh, you know, are so unlike they should be. Even the fact that she's, you know, has this infant brain in an adult body that is developing under, you know, it is almost a laboratory setting in the sense that it gets so few inputs until she finds her way out into the world. And, and then that becomes the catalyst for change. But it's all fascinating. But I think here it's, he's just found a way to, you know, make it kind of enjoyable. It, you know, I mean, there's something, there's a lightness to this movie, despite a lot of incidents and a lot of aspects that if you were just to describe it flatly to a person, you'd think you'd be in for a very, very dark time at the movies. I don't think it's a coincidence that both of those movies are expressly about an adult woman coded as a child, like an, an adult woman who's in some ways being like held back and deliberately stunted by an older male father figure trying to get her claim her own sense of agency and that one of the major ways she's claiming that agency is through sex. Like both of these movies are doing exactly that thing. They're they're very similar in that regard. I just think one of the big differences is that with Dogtooth, there's a a pretty strong sense that the adult uh, girl in question is being harmed, like actively being harmed by being offered to her brother for incest, being, you know, beaten by her father with a VHS tape for bringing a VHS tape into the house. There's physical and sexual and emotional harm going on there. Bella seems almost immune to that you know she's actively physically stronger than the people holding her back she's kind of like domineering and like almost emotionally poorless in a way where all of the emotions that people dump on her kind of roll off and she's a lot more 
I'm just uh, capable. She gets a lot further, a lot faster. You know, Dogtooth ends in a very ambiguous way where ultimately you can't really say whether the character that you're you're pulling for gets anything like what she wants. But here you get to see on screen as, as Bella Flowers, as she takes risks and you keep thinking, well, that's going to end in disaster because this is a Lanthimos film. And she everything keeps coming up Millhouse in a way. You know, again, she has, you know, bad moments and ends up in bad places. But this isn't a story about trauma or tragedy for her. It's a coming of age story for an adult woman who's not exactly an adult, not exactly a woman, just a, a lot of different symbolic things compounded on each other. And it, it does feel like the same story, but told in a way that's much less about harm and, and trauma and damage and much more about shrugging off all of the people that try to tell you what's real. And I think one of the ways it pulls that off is in establishing the rate at which Bella grows and develops, you know, and it allows for this very incident-packed movie where she moves through these different situations and they kind of like roll off of her. But we do see her in Emma Stone's performance, which I just love. Like we do see her changing and almost almost scene to scene. We see her moving through these experiences and processing them almost scientifically, you know, the experiment of life, like kind of gathering data and processing it very quickly. And to bring it back to Dogtooth, which I also thought of watching this, just the way she uses language and how it changes over the film is another source of humor. Like furious jumping is going to be in (laughs) my personal lexicon for the foreseeable future. But also just like the degree to which she evolves in her language, but in a sort of unique or unexpected way. And like, you know, and of course she would suddenly be able to speak French very easily because that's like what this character is set up to do. She just like kind of plows through the human life experience. And because of the rate at which she is doing this, I think it allows her to move past trauma very quickly to process it. You know, like the sort of the biggest emotional devastating moment for her is not uh, something that happens to her but when she see when she recognizes the suffering outside her in the world and because that is something that she can't process on her own the way she can everything else she tries to by you know attempting to to give money to these poor people but that doesn't work you know i don't think she ever finds out that it doesn't work Maybe. But at any rate, like, as far as sort of the lack of trauma to this character, it's very, like, kind of external, the degree to which she is upset by things. You know, there aren't things that are happening to her, it's things that happen to other people. It's interesting to me how she develops kind of a moral sense outside of any influence, really. I mean, I I don't feel like Willem Dafoe's character is giving her a huge amount of of guidance in terms of the difference between right and wrong, but it's something that she discovers and ends up having pretty strong feelings about along the way when she got, when she kind of figures out what's going on with this kind of sleazy lawyer that she's run off with, with played by Mark Ruffalo. 
and uh, how she ends up feeling about, you know, as you were saying, the, the poor people that she sees in Egypt and what she wants to do about that. I mean, she has a pretty strong sense of right and wrong, a very stark, basic sense, which is kind of almost childlike in, in a way, I think. Well, also, she was reading those philosophy books right sure. before that, you know, she, she was going through her philosophy phase, which uh, I'm sure influenced that as well. Yeah, which is, I guess, I mean, that that's kind of the advantage of being an adult with an infant brain is you still have the infant brain is, is going to have that ability to soak in knowledge like a sponge. Adults don't mm-hmm. necessarily have that ability. Yeah. But it is fascinating to me that, I mean, she is highly suggestible. I mean, the people that she meets and sort of ping-pongs around have an outsized influence on her for sure. But but she does have this kind of moral center that developed throughout the movie uh, this, that sort of guides her. I, f- I find that kind of fascinating, the way, the way it kind of snaps into place. I think it's necessary because one of the, the biggest themes of the movie is this is something that Lanthimos has done in a lot of his movies, maybe all, I guess I would have to sit down with them and kind of like unpick them apart serially uh, to be sure. One of the things he likes to do with his movies is examine sort of assumptions in society and try to figure out where they came from and whether there's actually value to them. I remember reading a lot of interviews about The Lobster, where he talks specifically about this, about a period where he was single and just kind of looking around him and thinking, like, why is coupledom so valuable? Like, why are people treated so differently if they're part of a partnership and treated if they're, as if there's something naturally inherently wrong with them? If not, what happens if we take that to extremes? And here, instead of, you know, examining the institution of parenthood or of relationships or what have you of like one thing, he creates this like very aggressively naive character who takes everything at face value and then examines it for herself and asks a lot of questions about, well, okay, but why is it this way? Why does money work the way it does? What's the value in some people being rich and some people being poor? Why do gender relationships work the way they do? Like, why why is sex valuable to people and why are they restrictive about who's allowed to have it with who and when? And she just keeps asking these, like, just very baseline, okay, but why questions, which, again, mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a childish point of view. You know, a, a baby's view of the world is just constantly asking the questions why, except when a real world child does it, it's, it's you know, why is the sky blue? And here it's, you know, why can't I have sex with this other guy two minutes after having sex with you and then have sex with you again without you making a big deal out of it, you weird baby. <laughs> so I, I, I just I think one of the, the biggest themes going on in this movie is just like, let's let's pick apart society and see if any of this makes sense from the perspective of somebody who hasn't been, you know, in, engendered with it from the start as this is the way things are and should be. Well, I mean, I think you could, you could almost have kind of a multi-purpose reading of of Bella's line of uh, discovery that Bella ha- uh, can be happy whenever she wants or whatever she says that it's like <laughs> you, you know I, I I mean I feel like that that's kind of a revelation ends up being a revelation in more more ways than one it's like why why can't I have all of these things you know and it, it has to do with you know more than self pleasure I think yeah it is it, important to note for those who haven't seen the film that Bella can be happy whenever she wants specifically refers to her discovering masturbation for the first time and being very confused as to why like other people aren't doing it regularly especially if you know you look sad here let me fix that all i have to do is grab you and rub you here 
this I mean this movie is very transgressive in a lot of ways uh, the the sexual themes stretch all throughout it there's a lot it it says a lot of things about you know men and women more than anything but also about the value of sexual pleasure and sexual control and the question of like why people are jealous or feel like they have like an entitlement over each other's bodies what do you what do you make of the sexual themes in this movie like I said, I'm still figuring out exactly what to make of it. All I know is that I, I like it. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm like I'm like I'm like Bella in in that way, and I particularly like the whole Paris sequence and Bella's and adventures in the oldest profession, and how that invokes ideas of liberation through sex for women and sort of the double-edged sword of that and uh, what it can be for women when separated from society's judgment of it, particularly for the women who are providing this service, not so much for the men. So just the fact that this movie engages so directly and so non-judgmentally and so kind of non-traumatically with prostitution as a form of liberation, I think is representative of its ideas about female sexuality. It's certainly not like the only thought it has about female sexuality, but I think that segment of the movie is very important because of that. Uh, well, I think one thing you could say too is like is that because Bella doesn't know the rules, that in itself is this incredible pathway to sexual liberation, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that she has that freedom at all times to kind of pursue her pleasure or not that's liberation and, and it, it not just her pleasure yeah. like it's during it, it gives her the ability to become a fuller person she discovers socialism and <laughs> uh and makes female friends you know and and becomes a a more whole person thanks to this way she has to earn money that is you know related to her sexuality but she's at this point able to divorce her expectation of pleasure from it at the same time, I like that the film isn't entirely naive about the fact that sex work isn't necessarily work that everybody involved in sex work chooses. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think it's relatively clear eyed about the fact that Bella is an, an utter anomaly, that she's a monster. You know, she's a a creation in society who's like no one else and experiences the world, maybe not just mentally, but also, you know, emotionally and socially and, and physically unlike anyone else. And, you know, the brothel that she ends up in, the people there do not seem hugely like liberated and empowered by the, the work that they do. It's not implied that any of them, I think, are like sexual slaves, but there is sort of a sense that the way she sees it is as with pretty much every other aspect of the movie, not necessarily the way they see it. So, you know, it's not just a, a shout out to sex work is, is yeah. freedom. <laughs> uh, it's again, just a way in which her perspective is very specific and yeah. she brings that perspective to other people who are free to embrace it or reject it or interrogate it as they want. 
We should talk a little bit about the style and the costuming of this movie. Like we're we're going to talk a little bit about sleeves, style. Sleeves, 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 oh sleeves. Oh my god, the sleeves! <laughs> the the sleeves that just get like bigger and more elaborate and more. It's hard to take your eyes off of them at times. There are scenes in this movie where very important action is taking place, and I was just kind of like looking at the sleeves, which in some case you could like fit a whole person into. I'm pretty convinced you could take off some of those sleeves and they'd make a, a perfectly cromulent sheath dress for uh, you know a, an, an actress-sized lady. What's up with the sleeves, Genevieve? Oh, I love the costumes in this movie, like top to bottom. And I do love the sleeves, but I particularly love the sleeves in concert with the shorts, <laughs> which is a, a ensemble that, that Bella favors, particularly in the earlier parts of the film when she is more childlike. And I think it's a, you know, to be very literal about it, I think the sleeve is referencing the uh, Victorian silhouette in which, in sort of the era in which this ostensibly takes place, although it is a very loose, stylized interpretation of <laughs> Victorian era. And then she has these these short pants, you know, like her uh, her legs are, are just bare. And, you know, that's a, in the context of Victorian England, that would be something that only a very small child would be able to do, would, would to wear short pants, you know, but in the context of this character, literally a, a, a woman and a child smashed together and, and thrown in the face of Victorian society, it doesn't get more literal than that in, in costuming, but it's also just so arresting to look at. And I think just on a visual level, the sleeves, you know, they, they draw attention to Emma Stone's face, you know, they frame her face and sort of the eccentric performance she's giving in all respects, but in her face especially. And yeah, it just, it works so well. I love it. Yeah, I mean, and I really uh, like the kind of different gears the film shifts into in terms of a look too, because he, he, all the stuff in the lab being this sort of monochromatic uh, fisheye <laughs> lens look. And then and then when, once Bella gets out into the wider world, you have these bursts of color, you know, against backdrops that are odd and theatrical and, and uh, very sort of in studio. It's a wonderful contrast bet- between the two and, and, and uh, you know, and is suggestive of, of her world opening up, of her being able to, you know, in, in that Wizard of Oz kind of way of just, you know, sepia to color of just like the, everything is just bright and, and spectacular once once she leaves the, the lab. There's also a design aesthetic to parts of this movie that remind me of Wes Anderson in a way n- nothing has in a long time. Like since he became so idiosyncratic that AI kind of like <laughs> accurately reproduce how he does set design. No, it can't. Uh, there's like there's a cruise ship inaudible angry muttering from Scott yes yes there's a cruise ship in particular that just feels like a kind of like Andersonian meets yellow submarine concoction there's a city that's a, a very small set that feels like the kind of thing it, like if if Wes Anderson and Dr. Seuss got together, they might end up with that that city. The sort of like insular set that's that's meant to be artificial, but is also meant to, you know, evoke kind of like color and airiness and whimsy, but in a very dry sort of way, is just something I don't see that much. Looking this much like Wes Anderson outside of Wes Anderson films, definitely see the point of comparison in sort of the 
proud and loud artificiality of it and the, the, the color, but there's something like wilder and less controlled feeling about uh, this, this movie to me than less prim, I guess, than, than, uh, than Wes Anderson's style is. Right. And it feels like there's more sort of like Gothic and Art Nouveau influence happening and just, well, steampunk, of, of course, there's a lot of uh, steampunk influence as well. Uh, give, a, give a shout out to the horseless carriage with the horse head oh, on, on, the, on the front. I love it. <laughs> so that weird. is like the, which, most, which, which is like so- the most memeable thing. Like I was just dying for it. it, it, it there's still not an image of it on the internet because it's like I'm ready to yeah. meme away on that because it's it's awesome. It's certainly whimsical in a way that I associate with with Anderson, but it's a darker, more maybe lurid type of, of whimsy. It feels a little Willy Wonka-ish, like like 1971 oh, yeah. Willy, Wonka- Willy Wonka-ish. Well, what about uh, Tasha? I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the, like, uh, did this not give you Baron Munchausen kind of vibes? You know, I mean, particularly given Gilliam's love of the fisheye lens, I thought that there's the sense of fantasy and whimsy the darkness the look of the 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 kind of the color the 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 the, you know the lensing like i thought that would uh hit those sort of gillian buttons for you gosh that is a really interesting comparison that honestly hadn't occurred to me terry gilliam and i broke up he got all weird and and men's ratesy and uh reactionary and everything out of his mouth these days makes me uncomfortable and i i think i just don't mentally reach for him in the way i used to but also, I would say this, nobody's going to look at this film and think of Stanley, Stanley Kubrick per se, but it does have kind of a, a Kubrickian formality to it that is mm. like the exact opposite of the kind of thing Terry Gilliam does. Like Terry Gilliam is all anarchy. Like he, he does a lot of things from the, the seat of his pants. He encourages performances that are very kind of like flaily and, and over the top and like just this side of chaos. And Lanthimos doesn't do that at all. I, I I feel like everything that happens here is very crisp and calculated and thought through. So even if there are visual similarities in terms of, of camera approach, even if there are kind of conceptual similarities in terms of you know, the, the fantasy. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the two of them in the same basket ever. And and part of that is also just if you go back and look at uh, Terry Gilliam's movies. All of them are at heart about the uh, like the power of fantasy, the power of escapism, and Lanthimos is the exact opposite. He's he's about like the power of examining things and and logic and control and intellectualism. I just I think that they're very very opposite forces. Yeah, I think maybe I'm just thinking about the look of the film. Uh, you know, yeah, the Kubrick thing. I mean, Lanthimos is is hugely influenced by by Kubrick and it has shown it more plainly in, in, in previous films. I think, I think Louis Benoit is another one as another person in terms of, in terms of social satire is, uh, and, uh, and kind of t- turning the tables as Lanthimos does here in other films. I think it's another pretty significant influence as well. This is the, he's the kind of guy that we need making movies <laughs> for, for just for our podcasting purposes, because there's so many, <laughs> a lot of, there's just a lot of good pairings that go with his stuff. Yeah, we've this is this is our third Lanthimos, so uh, he's definitely uh, getting up there. It's uh, one of our our more Wait, what, discussed. Who, what did we do? We did the favorite and what? We did Dogtooth. We paired it with Cajillionaire. So, Dogtooth was a classic <laughs> film. Okay, Dogtooth <laughs> was a classic film with the Cajillionaire, yeah. and then we did, and then we did, um, we did the favorite and, and what? Mean, mean Girls. Girls, of course. 
before we leave the discussion of the of the film's style, just because this is a specific style point, we won't be able to get into in, in connections. But I, I can we talk about the the fish islands because I've I've seen it brought up by some people as uh, too much, a little too much. What did you both think of that? I'm just not ever that much in favor of a fisheye lens unless it's being used. I mean, when when Gilliam uses it in Brazil, it's almost always to give you a sense of uh, the panopticon of like some kind of like malign force that has a very twisted way of looking at things is looking at you or, you know, looking at whoever's on screen at the moment. I would not be surprised going back and rewatching this, especially if it's focused on the beginning of the movie. Because I, I don't know at what, at what point it leads off. Uh, it sounds like Scott was saying that it's a, a more of a beginning of the movie thing, but it certainly could, you know, reflect how everything in her world is filtered through uh, through Godwin, and he is a very twisted creature with a very twisted outlook. We we haven't talked at all really about him and his constant casual talk about funny and traumatic at the same time he just keeps constantly coming up with you know well my father certainly would have nailed my genitals to a board and thrown darts at them if he hadn't had like you know a, a scientific purpose you know he he just keeps coming up with worse and worse things that his own father did to traumatize him all of which he like assumes were done beneficently and with with purpose and that were important which is kind of back to the whole twisted upbringing and the power of parents uh thing that we see both in dogtooth and and here he's trying to do something differently than his dad but then it doesn't work out so he goes back to he goes he tries he tries uh, another similar uh, creature played by margaret qualley that he, he's gonna give uh, treat a little harsher because uh maybe that because maybe the experiment will work out a little bit better that way but he tries to he's trying he's tr- he's he's trying to be trying to be the good dad here a little bit sure but but regardless i mean it's it's very clear that he has a very warped view on the world and yes. in spaces that he controls, it's not surprising to me that the camera would take a very warped view on the world as a, a way of expressing that. But that's, again, there's so much going on in this movie. It's so dense. There's so much incident and so many ideas. Like, I would have to go back and rewatch it to really yeah. be sure when he's doing those tricks with the camera and what I think they signify. That wasn't quite the direction that, that my mind went in with it, but it's it's sort of related in that kind of what, how I was reading the fisheye lens was uh, it kind of similar to a microscope and also kind of has a little bit of a surveillance feeling and I think ties into this uh, kind of, you know, idea that keeps coming up of, you know, this is all just one big experiment that like she's his experiment and she's kind of experimenting with the world, you know, like her whole experience is kind of running an experiment on humanity and seeing what happens. So that was sort of my take on the fisheye lens, but it also blends into what you're suggesting. Tasha. So I like that uh, interpretation a lot. Yeah. Fisheye lens. It has a point. (laughs) Besides looking, I don't actually like the look of the fisheye lens that much. But again, it's employed here in a a way that I think uh, pulls it off. Well, we should get into connections. But in that same spirit of here's things we're not going to be able to talk about in connections. I just want to bring up the fact that Mark Ruffalo's performance here is one of my absolute favorite of the year. Uh, he is. Oh, I've I've gotten so used to him. I think as as Bruce Banner in the MCU that I've forgotten that he's like a really experienced and flexible actor, and that he's good at comedy. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. he is so freaking funny in this movie. 
And he's he's just given these like, you know, giant platefuls of ham to eat and he just he mm-hmm. goes in with both hands. It's a blast. Yeah. One of the more amusingly petulant performances in cinema. <laughs> And just uh, very, very over the top in a fun kind of way, but but also in a very varied way. Like he gets to play a lot of people in the person that he's playing in this movie. And I, I think that's a fun time. Also, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the dangling threads of this this movie, I don't, I don't think we really get an answer to what happens to his character. He kind of like barges back in in, a, in an important moment and then is not heard from again. Yeah, I'm not um, sure that the movie cares. Yeah, because Bella doesn't care. Like she's yeah. lost Her interest Odyssey. in him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Scott, we've each thrown out one uh, one favorite thing that we really wanted to discuss. What's yours? What's your big standout for poor things? I mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Is it the dog I, duck? I, it's or the chicken? Yeah, dog? I do. I do. I do, <laughs> I do like the. Uh, I think. I think it's like a. It's like a Frenchie, right? The the dog mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it more of that more of that stuff. Um, but uh, I like. Should have been a pug. I, yeah, and it, it was Christopher Abbott at the uh, as oh, the yeah. husband. Yeah. Terrific! Uh, yeah. That guy, that guy is unbelievably talented. I want to put all, all all the chips in for Christopher Abbott. I think that, I think he's just an immense talent, and that needs to you know hopefully we'll find the roles that are suitable to that talent because he's got it. Well, there are other actors that we should really talk about in Poor Things, but they're actors whose roles within the story and kind of roles within the symbology here uh, both match up a lot more neatly with things that go on in the Frankenstein movies. So let's take a break and then we'll move into Connections. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. These two are fighting and ideas are banging around in Bella's head and heart like lights in a storm. Oh. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable way of speaking. I'm a changingable feast, as are all of we. Apparently, according to Emerson, disagreed with by Harry. Come, come, just come. You're in my son. What? Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all of the things that they have in common. I feel like one of the big things we've already kind of touched on, you know, earlier, there's there's some obvious broad connections that we'll get into. But for me, one of the things that stands out here is the parent and child relationships, the kind of parent and child metaphors, since both of these stories are about people who are playing God effectively bringing an adult into the world. And these adults are very naive uh, children. You know, they're, they don't have full control over their own bodies. They don't understand how the world works. They don't know how to respond to other people. And one of them slowly learns that over time and, and kind of finds uh, agency in it. And the other one doesn't and just kind of keeps repeating the same like response. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ultimately, the the danger of bringing a fully grown adult into the world with a child's mind is that, uh, you know, adults are full size. So uh, Frankenstein is physically dangerous uh, to everyone he meets. You know, if he was 
if he had been produced as a baby, like all of his rages and, and tantrums would not result in a trail of bodies. But he basically has the 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 brain of an infant. I mean, technically, no. Technically, he has the brain of an abnormal yeah. uh, adult. But he comes into the world, you know, naive and ignorant and helpless. And when he reacts to the abuse that he's given, it's with lethal force because, you know, he's a, a, a big, strong monster. Bella does some of the same kind of kind of shenanigans, you know, it's she's a pretty unpleasant character for a lot of this movie. She's, you know, societally breaking like bold and brash. And that can be both comedic and a little off-putting, but she also throws tantrums, you know, and, and flips tables and throws things and, and screams and is very strong and very dangerous. So that idea of like dangerous adult children and the kind of twisted, warped parents that bring them into the world and then want to own them, even though they are sort of technically, at least physically adults, and who are, who, you know, come across as abusive in their attempts to cut their uh, large adult sons and daughters off from literal daylight or figurative daylight, I think is a thing both of these movies have very strongly in common. Yes, but they also both have moments of these parent figures sort of letting go of the the children they they make like I, I mean god yes he keeps bella confined for a portion of her life it's kind of unclear exactly how long uh she's been around uh, when, when the movie begins you know but he is the one who kind of uh, allows her to go off with duncan as uh, sort of it seems like he kind of just sees it as another phase in, in the experiment i guess you know but where the control comes back as you mentioned previously tasha is with felicity margaret qualley's character and sort of him trying to uh rectify what he sees as a mistake uh maybe in letting bella go and also dr frankenstein you know and bride of frankenstein in particular is he does not want to be associated with with this this monster he does not want to have anything to to do with his creation anymore he's he's actively trying to avoid it now that that it's out in the world there is also sort of this within this parent child dynamic sort of this twist on i guess like leaving the nest or or like the the child becoming their own thing outside of their parents control and obviously with more tragic circumstances in frankenstein's monster's case it's interesting to think about dr frankenstein and godwin as parents because of course they don't really see themselves as that they are uh, that they are scientists first and so their impulse is to inclination is to step back and take an observational role at a moment when their creations need them the most need guidance don't know their way through the, the world a parent a parent would of course you know if you if you've had a, if you've had an infant as i have a couple of times they they need a lot of stuff you need they need you to do for everything and and and, and they need your 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 guidance at, at that point at the earliest point of their lives it's certainly you know it, even though both of these creations are adults or giant monsters they're underdeveloped and they don't they're not familiar with the world and they need some sort of guidance and and uh but the the scientist approaches to see okay well, what, what's going to happen but of course both of them are you know the, the tension in both both the, the horror i guess of 
Frankenstein and then the comedy of poor things is that they can't is that they immediately cannot do that they they have to step in <laughs> the experiment is out of control instantly and so they have to kind of figure out how to intervene in the ways in which they influence their creation particularly Godwin is so kind of warped and hilarious it's also interesting in this in the uh, context of this connection to note that both the monster and Bella do eventually follow in the footsteps or, or, or take up the family business to one degree or another. Uh, uh, Bella very directly, you know, she literally takes over God's plan, I guess, <laughs> at the end of the film. It, it's a little more oblique with, with the monster, but, you know, there you can kind of read him uh, working with Dr. Pretorius to create a mate, you know, as sort of following in his creator's footsteps and, and collaborating on a, a creation of his own. And also in the end, kind of coming to the same realization that Frankenstein comes to as far as the uh, unsustainability of that, of that creation. <laughs> As far as Scott's observation that both of the the parental figures in these kind of twisted upbringing uh, relationships think of themselves as scientists and are t- trying to take a like a more reserved and observational route and then can't. I think there's a a big obvious reason for that and that's because of the kind of science that they're performing. Well, it's a it's a weird kind of science, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that's the, the 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 connection we have. But it's also uh, you know it's a fantasy version, a magic version of science, although it's uh, kind of portrayed in very similar ways, but with the the electric coils and the opening of the brain of the head and whatnot. I really, I do sort of love the aspect of uh, that both films take, where they're just not really even trying to kind of even explain the science of it in a way it's just sort of like we're in a lab full of gizmos yeah, electricity is and, just, magic. and this is you yeah. know and then of course that is that's such a basic elemental power you know light you know electricity lightning just something something that some godlike power that you you know that uh zeus-like power i guess was that you can kind of summon and put in a, in a uh, a dead thing and make make that dead thing alive and and what what that makes you is is uh you know something more than a scientist as someone someone you know someone who, who is god it, it, you know and of course literally in in um in poor things his, his name is godwin but of course she calls him god just directly that is that is who he is and he himself uh, look it looks like the product of, yeah. of uh, a certain uh, frankensteinian uh, process yeah, and I mean that kind of links back to the connection we were just talking about with uh, with parents and, and children and, and Godwin's whole thing, where he is to a large degree his father's monstrous creation and uh, has you know passed that outlook, I guess, on, on, on life down, or but but also kind of evolved it in his approach to Bella, and then Bella, in like I said, taking up the family business at the end, kind of evolves it in her own way too, and it, like it gets like increasingly distanced from the sort of just violent application of of science as control from uh, that Godwin's father practiced to. Uh, you know what what Bella is attempting to do. We certainly don't know what where it will lead, but it seems to be uh, the point we leave her a, a more benign relationship to uh, to it. Oh, I don't know about that her. at all. I mean, yeah. Yeah. without without getting into spoilers on poor things, I think there's certainly a, a character that would say that 
you know, these these violent designs are being used to violent ends and that her well, her engagement with uh, Godwin's science is is being used to maybe do, not like, benign, righteous. Uh, maybe <laughs> oh, is there we go. The, yep. the, the better word. Yeah. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, I think you could say that in their own way, you're doing what, what every generation wants to do, which is to kind of do things a little bit better than your parents did. <laughs> So like each, each, each person in poor things, each, you know, does a little bit better than their, uh, their, their parent did, uh, by, by the end. So there's a, it's a, it's kind of a, an optimistic ending in its way. So the connection that we actually have written down is weird science, but I will go further and say that, you know, this is mad science. And I think a lot of our both kind of visual and conceptual imagery around mad science comes from Colin Clive's performance as, as Henry Frankenstein here. You know, there's there's the, you know, bubbling retorts and the Jacob's Ladders and the, you know, dark Gothic expressionist lab full of uh, full of nastiness and the everything must be done during a storm of it all. But there's also, you know, he he just gives a very like eye rolling, obsessive, I'll show them all fools, you know, kind of almost villainous performance as a mad scientist. And I we've inherited a lot of that in the concept of the the scientist who, you know, when we say mad science, we we mean like one of two things. One is that, you know, it doesn't acknowledge any kind of like conventional morality or scientific process. It's all about obsessive drives and not caring like what the world thinks. And if you've got to go murder a few people and, and cut out their hearts in order to make your science work or experiment on unwilling live uh, human subjects or whatever – well, you know, you gotta you gotta progress somehow, and the scientific discovery is worth it. But we also mean science that does like supernatural level stuff because the scientist is not following the rules, you know, is not following like clinical laboratory rigor and therefore is doing stuff nobody else would think of. And it does actually work, for instance, by bringing corpses to life. So I, I just I think it's interesting that our version of, of Henry Frankenstein in both of these movies is I kind of love the moment in Bride where he goes from telling Pretorius like, no, I'm I'm never going back to this again. It was a destructive and horrible thing. I under no circumstances will make another monster. But when he gets back into the lab, he falls back into old habits. He becomes his old, like bossy, mm-hmm. forceful, nothing matters except the experiment and accept getting my way kind of thing. He's an obsessive and he's both very cruel and uh, very monomaniacal in getting done what he wants to get done. So it's interesting to me that Godwin is specifically portrayed as still twisted, still very much outside the bounds of conventional morality, but kind, you know, I like wants to engage in a, a a personal like parental relationship with his experiment the scene where they're lying in bed together and he's telling her about the world has a very innocent father daughter feeling to it to me that that isn't at all sexual but it's also very personal it's it's not the distance to remove of the scientist it's somebody who really does care about his experiment so even though he's firmly in the mad scientist category, he doesn't behave like our cliche of it. He is a much warmer individual, even if he's very, very twisted about how he pursues both his his means and uh, his relationships. 
And listening to you just now, it, it occurred to me that both Poor Things and Bride of Frankenstein includes a, a matter scientist <laughs> figure as, as, as a point of, of contrast in Dr. Pretorius and uh, Godwin's father, who, who we don't meet, but obviously hear quite a bit about. So I think by having a sort of more overtly mad character to kind of weigh our primary scientists against, it allows a, a little more of their uh, humanity nuance to come out, you know, or, or it's a little easier to maybe not quite sympathize with them, but to understand what's making them tick than if they were just a pure madman. Well, I mean, both of these, one thing they have in common, sort of, I guess, is is a fairly extreme expressionistic visual style i mean it's not the same style exactly but it is markedly different from whatever the whatever the style of the time might might have been uh with frankenstein and bride of frankenstein james whale was drawing from german expressionism all these um uh, very very dark shadowy angular films that were being imported at the time in fact i think Frankenstein came out the same year as Fritz Lang's M, uh, and while and while I, I, while M is is the far more sophisticated of the two films on on virtually every level, I think I think it's significant that 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 style was you know imported and and then deployed qu- quite a lot, um, not just here that not just in Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein, but in in the the noir movement to come um and so frankenstein was kind of a, a first glimpse into that influence and then of course with you know poor things i mean you certainly get a lot of a lot of odd angles and you know that, that sort of underline the eccentricity and the strangeness of this situation but then you get this wonderful variance between the lab scenes which uh, i think uh, was it uh, genevieve who compared it to kind of a microscopic look the the fish eye of uh, the sort of fish eye lens and the, the, the black and white to when bella goes out in the wider world and we get this uh, really beautiful more more colorful you know sort of matte painting sort of sort of look to it uh so the both of these both of these films kind of use their premises to uh really go out on a limb stylistically yeah i think in both of these cases it's just really appropriate to have kind of warped twisted fantasy versions of the world to reflect that kind of warped twisted fantasy versions of the world that the the protagonists or at least the the central scientists have it's just it's a way of kind of twigging the audience to say you know we're we're outside of reality here or we're at least at a fairly extreme bound of reality yeah, and I, I think it's especially interesting to note how these styles are applied to the natural world in particular to, you know, in stories about characters who were, uh, you know, born in a lab who venture out into the real world and into nature. Like one of the most striking sort of sets to be in, in Bride of Frankenstein is the the forest that's just like pillars of trunks, like just giant trunks with no with no leaves on it, you know? It's just, a, like I said, a very striking image. But, you know, you also have it in contrast to sort of earlier in the film where Frankenstein is sort of like wandering these more like bucolic forests, you know? So the way that 
this expressionistic style is applied to just trees in different ways is uh, very kind of interesting to note and compare throughout the film. And then, you know, in Poor Things, we get these kind of incredible, unreal quote unquote natural landscapes like of the upthing of the ocean uh, that we see during the cruise ship that's just like kind of technicolor, you know, and the the in Egypt, you know, that it's it's all like a, a very stylized view, you know, of the natural world. And it's that is being seen through the eyes of these unnatural creatures. Like it's it's a natural world portrayed in an unnatural light as seen by an unnatural protagonist. And it, it just it's a way that I think the the form follows function or the style follows the narrative and the ideas of both films. Although in both cases, in terms of form following function, I wonder how much budget consideration came in in the degree of stylization in both of these films. Like I, I just keep coming back to that image of the cruise ship and how much it looks like a strange little Wes Andersonian toy, you know, the, the kind of thing that you might see in like a stop motion movies in terms of extreme stylization. But that's also something you get from, you know, we did this all in CG because there was no way to build this as a, a set or as a convincing model. And in in Frankenstein, one of the things that just kept striking me over and over is like the scenes that take place atop a hill where the, the monster is fleeing and the dogs are pursuing and the mob is there waving their torches and it's all terrifying. But you can really visibly see the wrinkles in the backdrop that is the sky. You know, there's this sharp hilltop uh, against a, a kind of like vivid, dark, cloudy sky. But the vivid, dark, cloudy sky is a giant curtain with uh, clouds painted on it. And it's pretty wrinkly and very, very visibly so. So I just kind of think of in both cases, some of the limitations on the world that are also just some of the the kind of like extreme contrasts that make them visually interesting may well have just come out of like budget concerns. Wow. Tasha calling these movies out is cheap. <laughs> I mean, you know, movies in 1931 were, you know, being made for hundreds, sometimes Universal dozens of dollars. Was not spending a ton of money on yeah. the movies at the time, but uh, I think poor thing, poor things looks very expensive. Bright had more resources toward it, yeah. right? Yeah, like, pretty visibly so. so. Just based on the, yeah. based, based on it was, you know, the first one being such a huge yeah. hit. And poor things. I think poor things looks pretty awesome. <laughs> I don't think yeah. there's any limitations I'm, I'm to not it at in all. any way saying that it doesn't look awesome. I'm saying that <laughs> these days effects cost money, and you can try to make things look super photorealistic, and then they're very either very expensive or they're unconvincing or both. Or you can go with something like more extreme and weird and, and stylized and fun and thematic uh, and you know communicative and, and suggestive of a theme. That might actually be easier to do, you know, because you're not trying to make it look exactly like convincing reality. I mean, that would have been a terrible mistake on the Philip or Lanthimos's part to try to do any to try to do anything other than what he did. Really, Just, I, I mean, I think I think the stylization of those worlds is part of what makes a film so exciting. 
And like while acknowledging that, yes, obviously the the cruise ship is CGI, as is that odd hotel with the stairs to nowhere uh, in Egypt, like both also look like they could be models, you know, like the design of them has a look of like, this is something that could have been built in a movie from the 1930s, perhaps in film as a model, you know, and it's obviously created here in CGI, but it felt to me in the moment anyway, that it was more evoking the feeling of filmed models than of, ooh, I'm just going to press a few buttons on this computer and have a scene, you know? And also, uh, just real quick to note with Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein in particular, is that, you know, James Whale had a had a background in set design. He came from the theater, and he wasn't, like, necessarily designing these uh, sets himself, but he certainly had ideas and input into them. And I think it would make sense if he were of the mind that you know, you should know these are sets. You should recognize that that this was built by by human hands, and you should appreciate that. So, you know, wrinkly fabric and, and, and all. So, <laughs> well, we're running very long, and we should we should blitz past a few of these, just in terms of like uh, we we discussed at kind of at length with both of these films how humor and camp is being used to communicate the story, uh, and like lighten it up a little bit. Both of these. Well, all three of these movies, maybe not so much. Maybe just Bride and uh, and Poor Things have their campy elements to them. And it, it's kind of an important part of how they keep some of the, the darker ideas like accessible and light. Both of these movies, again, about people playing God, about people with God complexes who can't foresee that their, you know, twisted fiendish experiments will go wrong because they haven't thought that far ahead. You know, it's none of these movies are about uh, long-term advanced planning. They're kind of about people wanting to see the results of a a short-term experiment and then being left with a long-term experiment. And, you know, both of these movies also just very much about the mob, about you know, conventional thinking and and how people react, how they enforce normalcy, how they enforce what they've been raised to understand as the truth, sometimes so aggressively that, you know, it results in in buildings being burned down. There's kind of a a, a terror of groupthink and the mob that runs through both of these movies that I, I think is one of one of the darker elements. But maybe we could wrap up with a a pretty small connection that Genevieve, you pointed out. Yeah, specifically between Bride of Frankenstein and and Poor Things. This does not apply to to Frankenstein. Get out of here, Frankenstein. Uh, (laughs) But both films have a sort of pivotal scene where music is a tool of expressing humanity or of allowing our protagonists to kind of uh, understand and see humanity in in a new way. Uh, We talked kind of at length about the the cabin scene in Bride of Frankenstein. I I don't think we mentioned that uh, the monster is drawn to the cabin by the hermit playing a, a beautiful little little violin. And the monster is specifically drawn in by the, the music. And as a result of that, he develops language, he understands friendship, he, under, you know, maybe starts to like have a sense of what love and safety and all these other sort of base human needs are. And music is what brought 
him to that. And in Poor Things, uh, one of Bella's early excursions alone out into the streets of Lisbon, uh, she is drawn to a woman uh, singing and, and playing an instrument that I forgive me, I can't remember which, uh, like on the on the balcony, and it's sort of this moment of quiet that sort of like recenters her in, in this like you know very chaotic, confusing experience for her, and kind of brings her back down to earth and lets her see like kind of the beauty of of what's happening around her too. So, and both are you know wordless moments, divorced from from language or explanation or anything sort of than that like base drive that base language of of music. You know, that's a connection that we didn't touch on at all that we did kind of mention in in both of the separate segments in terms of how both of these movies are very much about language acquisition and language mm. development. I keep saying both of these movies as the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are, are one movie, but you get you've, what I, you've what I mean. You've patched them together somehow, Tasha. Like into some, <laughs> like some sort of... Uh, <laughs> Twisted mad amalgam. Once again, uh, now I know what it is like to be God. Both of these movies just about, you know, people who can't talk as well as uh, as other people and as a result are like demonized and, and monsterized and have a lot of people reacting to them in very assumptive ways. Whether it's Duncan, you know, seeing Bella as kind of a conquest and a creature because she has so little language herself or people assuming that the monster like must be aggressive because it can't explain itself. These are both movies about language and the importance of language. And again, the, the sort of acquisition of language over time. And it's all thanks to the universal language of music. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you should mention the universal language, given that uh, the Frankensteins and uh, the many Frankensteins that followed are universal uh, pictures. Yes, I, I planned that. <laughs> But regardless, that's an excellent note to end on. So we're, we're going to use our acquired language to wrap this up. Uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are both available on DVD and Blu-ray, and they're widely available on streaming rental services. Poor Things is currently in theaters. it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, take us away. Well, we had some, uh, poor things called it in mind, a couple of different movies to me that saw the world and saw society from the eyes of basically a child or someone who didn't really, who hadn't been part of that world before. And they're they're both made by significant auteurs in the early 70s. Uh, one is called, one is The Wild Child uh, by Francois Truffaut. This is about a child who has spent, you know, the first 11 or 12 years of his life with little to no human contact and who is sort of taken out of that situation and then sort of taught to uh, be, be part of society. And then the other one is the Werner Herzog film called The Mystery of Caspar Hauser. This is 1974. It's either, you know, it's either the, called The Mystery of Caspar Hauser or The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. It's also called, uh, my favorite title for it is uh, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. <laughs> <laughs> always wanted to see the I always wanted to see the film based on that this is actually based on a somewhat of a true story but it is about Casper Hauser who has lived the first 17 years of his life life basically chained up in a tiny cellar with only a Tory horse to occupy his time and so when he is sort of brought out into the world he he is also 
uh, wild and people don't know how to kind of interpret his behavior. These films are very different experiences, just as you would expect from Truffaut or from Herzog, but they are both also expressions of how each of those directors understand civilization and society and are both very much like poor things and and, uh, and giving us essentially a naif uh, you know having to find their way in the world at, at a more advanced age and um, and so the, it would have been fun to talk to either one of about either one of those they're both very much worthwhile though I should say that the wild child is actually kind of hard to find so very unfortunate uh, so you might have to you might have to go to some interesting sources for that mystery Casper Hauser you can find anywhere have you have you all seen these either one of these movies I've seen Casper Hauser and uh, strong recommend I have not seen the wild child ah yeah wild child wild child is another just a wonderful super accessible Truffaut film uh, like small change which was also unavailable for the longest time until it surfaced briefly on paramount plus and then went away these are really good movies that you know you might want to watch a supplemental material poor things because there's a lot there's a lot to talk about there well, we did break format this time. We could have broken format even more and b- matched poor things up with four movies and given everybody <laughs> all of the homework. But somehow we could not stitch quite that many, uh, you know, rogue elements together into to one single monstrosity. This podcast would be six hours long. We're already running pretty long, but thank you, Scott, for those recommendations. If you uh, out there listening want to do a pair up of poor things and four other movies, you're certainly welcome to do so. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We'll be back next time, not with a pair of episodes, but with a single one-off. We'll be coming back with our Best Movies of 2023 roundup, and we'll figure out our next pairing after that when we see what lands in January. Once again, uh, we would be interested in hearing what you most want us to talk about of the 100,000 interesting movies that came out in December 2023 or are kind of carrying over to January. We welcome your feedback on Poor Things, on Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, on anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Uh, you can find me um, at The Reveal, in which I, where I'm the... Uh you know, editor and co-writer along with uh, our absent uh, co-host Keith Phipps. Uh, you can find my uh, work at Vulture, at uh, the New York Times, uh, Guardian, and other fine publications. You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, I'm also on TikTok uh, at, at Clout Chasers. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm at Clout Chasers 666. I just haven't used the account yet. Uh, uh, but eventually, eventually I will, I will, I'm going to try to become a, uh, TikTok famous and uh and then uh and i guess that will be my route to uh fame and fortune uh i probably not gonna i'm probably not gonna use it but if you but if you want to there may be some activity at out at clout chaser 666 uh that's me yeah what about you genevieve are you on tiktok um, no i am not i went through a, a brief tiktok phase during like peak pandemic lockdown time and i think because of that i have just like too many negative associations (laughs) with it so i'm i'm mostly just hanging out in the warm mostly low stakes confines of instagram these these days and still thinking really hard about what my first blue sky post is gonna be once i uh once i get to it (laughs) and i am uh actually uh filling my non-social media hours with my work as a tv editor at vulture 
And you, Tasha. I am the film editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Blue Sky at Tasha Robinson. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on TikTok. Uh, hey, I'm on Goodreads. Uh, Tasha Robinson there. Uh, come hit me up. I'm always <laughs> looking for uh, people to trade interesting book recommendations with. And uh, I, I do actually write a fair bit of stuff over there, strangely enough. Our absent co-host, uh, Keith Phipps, is a part of uh, what? What's what's it called again, Scott? The reveal. The revel? No. <laughs> no. Uh, and he is a freelancer who's all over the place at GQ, Vulture, The Ringer, and many other sites. You can find him on both Twitter and Blue Sky at kphips3000. Stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.